1 John chapter 1, we're going to be looking at a huge amount of scripture, verse 5, 6, and 7. That may not seem like a whole lot to you, but when I read the passage, you're going to see just how much wonderful information can be contained in three verses. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, This is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The apostle John has told us in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that Jesus is real, eternal, historical, remarkable. Jesus is also real experientially. That is, John has reminded us that we could know Jesus in a personal and an intimate way. In the first few verses, John testifies to a real, personal, eyewitness experience of Jesus. The words we are reading come from a person who spent time with Jesus, walked with him, talked with him laughed with him and wept with him and witnessed the unfolding of his ministry. His experience of Jesus, though there were moments of sorrow, after the resurrection was filled with unspeakable joy. And there were at least five reasons why John wrote this little note. And we talked a little bit about it the last week. But for those of you who don't remember, it was number one, that we might have fellowship. Like it says in verse three, that which we've seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his son Jesus Christ. And number two, so that we would have joy in verse four. These things we write to you that your joy may be fulfilled. Or fulfilled. And number three, that we would not sin, chapter two, verse one. That we aren't deceived in chapter two, verse 26. That we can know, that we know, that we know, that we have a right relationship with God, that we're saved in chapter five, verse 13. And remember what that word means, fellowship, koinonia. It's our shared life in Christ. John Stott speaks of fellowship as, quote, that common participation in the grace of God, the salvation of Christ, the indwelling spirit, which is the spiritual birthright of all Christian believers. It is their common possession of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which makes them one, unquote. Jesus, the real Jesus, is the basis of our fellowship. In order for you to understand this word, it's going to be very important that you understand the difference between relationship 
and fellowship. If you don't remember or if you forget what I'm about to say, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to understand anything I have left to say after this. Are you ready? I'm going to ask the very simple question. Do you understand the difference between relationship and fellowship? Let me help you with those two words. Relationship is something that you have with someone by virtue of the fact of relatedness, hence the word relationship. How many of you have a mother and a father? Raise your hand. How many of you have a mother or a father either alive or dead? Raise your hand. Okay, that must mean everybody. Everyone came into this world. So there's no angels. I just was checking. Sometimes angels sneak into the service, and I want to be able to spot them. But having said that, each and every one of you raised your hand. You had a mom or dad, either living or dead. And you are related to them. You have relationship with your mother or father or with your children or grandchildren by virtue of the fact that, you, that there's a relatedness. Fellowship is what you do in relationship. Fellowship takes place when you love someone, when you share information, when you share affection, when you share intimacy, when you share proximity. My children and my grandchildren are related to me by virtue of the fact that I am the father of my children and the grandfather of my grandchildren. Some children I have more fellowship with because they happen to be here. I have fellowship with my children when I call them on the phone or they call me. And, and like Jonathan did this morning and said, hi, dad, how are you? How, how are things going? How are things going with you in the church? So fellowship takes place when you talk with someone, when you touch someone, when you share affection or information with someone. When my children moved away, did our relationship change? No. My children will always be my children. My grandchildren will always be my grandchildren. But the fellowship changes. It might not be as frequent or it might not be as intense. Now, the reason why this becomes important to each and every one of you is because if you've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have relationship with God. You are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a relatedness that takes place because remember, for everyone who comes into a right relationship with God in Christ, the Bible says to them in John chapter 1 that they have the right to become the children of God. Fellowship is when you pray, when you sense God's presence, when you speak to him and he speaks to you. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that sin separates us from God. It doesn't change our relationship, but it does change our fellowship. And this is the argument that John's about to make. So when you see the word fellowship, you need to understand what it means. In this brief but powerful portion, John's going to remind us that God is light and that 
Jesus' light. The, the presence of Jesus is the presence of light. The light reveals truth. Real contact with Jesus is contact with the truth. In the presence of Jesus, we see our sin and we see his glory. If you come into contact with the Lord and your sin is not revealed and Christ's glory is not revealed, then the chances of whatever you've come in contact with isn't the God of the Bible. When John speaks of darkness, he's not simply referring to ignorance or the absence of light, but rather the realm of Satan and the realm of this world, which stands in rebellion against God. But whoever comes to Jesus will see his goodness, his moral perfection, his purity. Every life form has enemies. You don't have to live long in this world and take a quick glance at this world to see that insects eat plants. And some insects prey on other insects. And birds eat insects. And larger animals on, eat smaller animals. And in the human world, wicked people sometimes take advantage of other people. In the human world, some people get high. They take drugs, they drink, they drive, they put everyone at risk. Some people make really bad choices and horrible decisions and they put their family and they put their friends at risk. When John speaks of darkness and he speaks of sin, he's going to be speaking about the enemy of Christians. And I'm going to repeat this often so that it becomes almost like second nature for you. The Christian has three enemies the world, the flesh, the devil. The Christian has three champions the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You have everything that you need in order to maintain fellowship and grow in fellowship. So our friendship and fellowship is in Christ. We have an enemy, sin. Warren Wiersbe says, quote, sin is not simply outward disobedience. Sin is also inner rebellion or desire, unquote. He's exactly right. Sin isn't just simply something that you do. Sin can be something deep inside of your heart that you wish to do and you wish to do it all the time. So between here and chapter 2, verse 6, if you are one of those people who's a careful student of the Bible, you're going to note that the word sin is mentioned nine times between verse 5 and chapter 2, verse 6. I would encourage you, just when you have some time and you're rereading this passage, underline those times. See if you can find the nine times that it's mentioned. There's another contrast. The difference between saying and doing. Four times John is going to write, if we say. He's going to write, he that says. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. 
Look again in verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is written to him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. That's chapter 2. That's not what I want. Chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Chapter 2, verse 4. He who says, I know him. In the context, he's writing about a kind of a passive disobedience. Saying, for the person who says one thing and does another thing, John has very, very little patience for them. The Christian life has to be more than mere words or talk. The Christian life includes a walk. So the apostle's going to warn us that if we're truly living in fellowship with God, that's walking in the light, then our lives will reveal what our lips are saying. And so he starts with the basis of our real fellowship. In verse 5, this is the message which we've heard from him. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. John is very precise in his language. The message that he heard is the message that he speaks. This verse provides the condition or the basis of fellowship. Again, John writes, this is the message we heard from him. Why is this important? Because this isn't some mystical experience. This isn't some esoteric thing. This isn't something that John dreamed up in the night. This is not something that he saw on the History Channel or the Sci-Fi Channel. This is not something, a gurgling inside of his stomach that somehow manifests in his brain. This isn't something that he's made up. I want you to think just for a moment. Who is the source of John's message? Jesus. Jesus is the source of his message. That's what he's saying. John received this message from Jesus himself. Now that may not seem like a whole lot to you, but it it should be so very, very important, particularly for the people who bring you messages and and you ask The simple question, where did you get that? Where did you come up with that? I saw it on the internet. Um, I saw it on TV. It was posted on my Facebook. Where did you get the information? John's saying, I got this information from Jesus himself. Someone has said, quote, if God made man in his own image, then man has returned the compliment. That's the root of most of our problems. People imagine their own version of God and that God usually has a character similar to our own. Quote, all sin is in essence an attack on the character of God. We are not willing to believe that the living God really is as the scriptures reveal him to us, unquote. That's David Jackman. In other words, John is basically saying, this isn't a message from a Jesus of my imagination. This is the real Jesus. 
the Jesus who lived and died in the New Testament. Question, where did Jesus get his message? From God, the Father. Remember, he said, I've come from my Father. He said, my Father sent me. He said, my Father has given me a message to give to you. I want you to think about the chain of custody here for a moment. The Father gave the message to the Son. The Son gave the message to John. John gives the message to you. For the person in your life who says, what about all the thousands of years in which the Bible was written and how is, hasn't this been perverted, distorted, and messed up? How can you be absolutely certain that this message is from God? You should be able to open this, your Bible. You should be able to open it up to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 and 6 and say, this is how I know. This message that I'm telling you came from the Father to the Son, spoken to John, read it for yourself. Isn't that good? Jesus received the message from the Father. The apostle, in turn, relates the message of the Son. And it's interesting, it's interesting to me that John doesn't use the term gospel. He uses the term throughout his epistle, witness or testimony, or word, or truth, or message. And what is the message? God is light. Now I'm going to invite you to ask the text a question. You ready? Where did John get that? Where did John get that statement? God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Where do you suppose it came from? I already gave you the clue. It came from Jesus, didn't it? I'm going to give you another clue. It's found in John chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus himself says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Again, I want you to connect the dots. Where did John get this message? He got it from Jesus. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I'm, I'm the light of the world. What did you just read in your Bible? God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus says, I'm the light. I'm the light of the world. And everyone who follows me will not walk in darkness. Why is that important to you again? Because again, for those of you who, who have friends or family who question whether or not Jesus is really God, you might turn to John 1, 1 and say, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and that's fine. And it's true. But what I'm going to try to point out to you throughout these passages is that this is the reoccurring message in the New Testament. Jesus is God. How do we know that? He has the same honors that God has. He has the same attributes that God has. He has the same names that God has. He does the same deeds that God does. He sits on the same throne that God sits on. So think about that. If you share the same honors, if you share the same attributes, if you share the same names, if you do the same deeds... 
If you share the same throne, then the chances are Jesus is God. Now again, think about what you're reading. What does it mean that God is light? It seems crazy to even ask this question. And I'm not going to ask James to turn all the lights off. But if I did, if James turned all the lights off and then turned them back on, and I asked you the question, what is light? What would your answer be? Pretend it's a Pentecostal church and you can talk to me. Go ahead. I'm entertaining statements. What is your definition of light? Jesus is light. Good, good. That's a very good answer. It's the absence of darkness. But I'm going to suggest to you that we define it not simply as the absence of darkness, but the presence of that which allows you to see everything. It isn't just simply the absence of darkness. It's the ability to to see everything. That's what light does. Light makes it possible to see everything. Light reveals, darkness conceals. And in this sense, darkness represents what is sinful or evil. God is absent. Everything sinful and evil. The Greek passage could literally be translated, darkness is not in him ever. It's bad English, but it's great theology. Darkness is not in him ever. God is absent sin, completely untainted by sin. God is completely uncontaminated by sin. Question, is Jesus untainted by sin and uncontaminated by sin? The answer is yes. He is, he, the Bible says he was like us in every way, without sin. So, God is light means that God is perfect in holiness. He's perfect in truth. And so the Old and the New Testament speak of the realm of darkness and light. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Those in darkness despair. But those who are in the light experience hope. And so light is a picture of the power of God in Acts 26, 18. It's a gift from God in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. The source of all that is good in Ephesians chapter 5. And so over and over again, light is the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Light is the kingdom of, of, his, of his own dear son. Light is redemption. Light is forgiveness. Colossians chapter 1 verses 12 through 14. Add to this God's presence, God's fellowship, and the fellowship of God with us. Now we read First John chapter Uh, 1 verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The point that John is going to do is he's making and connecting the dots. Remember, fellowship is with the Father and the Son. Now he's talking about the conditions of fellowship. Darkness resists the light. Darkness refuses to recognize the light. Darkness is always pictured in the Bible typically as the power of Satan, but not always. 
Sometimes it's seen as evil deeds, like in Romans chapter 13, verse 12, or fruitless works, like in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, or the spiritual forces of evil, like it's described in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. But it's also darkness is pictured as the place of captivity in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. Why is all of that important? Because when the Bible uses these images, you've been taken out of darkness and put into the light. And that's the point. The point that John is making is that our fellowship is in Jesus. Part of the point that he's making is that Jesus is God. Part of the point that he's making is there's no place for darkness in God or in Christ. And part of the point that he's making is that you're in God and you're in Christ. And because you're in God and you're in Christ, there's no place for darkness in you. Light relates to the truth. Because it exposes whatever exists, whether it's good or bad. I want to ask you a question. Does good and evil look pretty much the same in the dark? Kind of, yeah, huh? When the lights are out and you hear the voices, good and evil sound a whole lot alike. But the light of God reveals the darkness of the human heart. And fellowship with God exposes the soul to the most intense scrutiny. Like a moral microscope with a high-powered light. The small areas of darkness and weakness and sin are exposed. I remember one of my favorite stories from a very long time ago. There was a Chinese merchantman who uh, was totally interested in gadgets. And this is at a time when microscope was a relatively new discovery. And the, Ch the Chinese man thought to himself, I've got to have a microscope. I've got to have a microscope. And so he had a microscope and he started putting stuff under there to look at under the microscope. And he's looking at his bowl of rice and he sees little larvae, little germs crawling on the surface of the rice. And what do you suppose he did? He took the microscope and he threw it away. Because he liked rice way more than he liked what the microscope revealed. See, we laugh, but that's sometimes what we do with sin. And that's sometimes what we do with Jesus and sometimes what we do with the Bible. We don't like what the Bible has to say about what's going on inside of our heart. So we decide not to read it. Or worse, believe it. And so John's going to talk about not just the basis of fellowship, but the breaking of fellowship. Look what it says in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, remember what I said fellowship is. It's the exchange of information and affection. Fellowship is proximity and intimacy. Fellowship is communication if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The verse continues the declaration of verse 5. God is light. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, he doesn't say, 
Well, you're not being completely honest with yourself. He uses a fairly harsh term. We lie and do not practice the truth. In John's definition of fellowship, fellowship means something. Truth means something. I want to pause for just a moment. Fellowship with God cannot mean whatever we want it to mean. It has to mean something the way that the Bible speaks of it, teaches, and explains it to us. Can anyone claim to have fellowship with God? Yeah. Does claiming that you have fellowship with God make it true? No. That's exactly right. But in John's mind, fellowship with God means you have certain things in common with God. You have certain things in common with Jesus. You have agreed to leave the darkness and practice the truth. Do you understand that? By the way, does it feel like I'm making that up? Does the text seem to indicate that what I'm saying is true? That John is inviting the reader to leave the darkness and to walk in the light? And so if a person says, I want to remain in the darkness and I don't want to walk in the light, it can't mean that. The Bible is not silent on the subject of darkness. The Bible claims that the world lies in darkness. The Bible claims that Satan is the prince of darkness. The Bible says that the world is in darkness. The Bible says that it's in opposition to God. The Bible says that we've left the kingdom of darkness and we've entered the kingdom of light. If I could be so bold to use kind of an alarming word, we are traitors against the darkness. We've turned our back on the darkness. We've decided that we are going to abandon the darkness and enter the kingdom of light. That's what Paul writes in Colossians 1.13 when he says, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his own dear son, unquote. But some of us have lost something in the translation. If he's translated us from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, he didn't ask us to bring the darkness with us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes, You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know what that means? You can say with complete confidence, I have been called out of darkness. I've been asked to leave that life. The verse began with a profession and then transitions to the practice. If we say we have fellowship with him, again, many people claim Christ but they refuse Christ's claims. 
Not everyone who claims Christ or Christianity possesses Jesus and possesses the life that Jesus is talking about. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, unquote. So for the person who says, I know God, I love God, but they insist on remaining in the dark. They resist in living in the dark. And even worse, loving the dark. Then something's gone terribly wrong. Some people are very long on lip service and very short on life. They can quote you yards of scripture, but they only live inches in their own life. And so we're given insight into the make-believer. The make-believer claims fellowship but refuses to renounce the claims of darkness in their lives. John calls them a liar. So what does that mean? What does it mean to walk in the darkness? We've already seen that darkness is a euphemism for what's sinful and evil. We walk in darkness when we walk in despair. We walk in darkness when we walk in bondage to Satan. We walk in darkness when we walk in in fruitless works. We walk in darkness when we practice evil deeds. We walk in darkness when we resist the truth or we reject the truth. We walk in darkness when we walk in sin and disobedience to God's word. So walking in darkness means to practice things that are contrary to the will of God, the holiness of God, the light that has been given to us in the word of God. And I'm going to suggest to you that this walk in darkness is really a reference to a walk. That word means something that you do over and over and over again. There's a certain sense of habituation or that which is done habitually. I don't think that he's talking about an event of sin or an occasion of sin or a difficulty with sin. He's talking about the person who lives in constant rebellion and constant disobedience. Uh, Jerry Vines writes, quote, John was attacking a heresy that was rampant in his day. Some people were saying that it was possible to be in fellowship with God and be in sin at the same time, unquote. And Jerry Vines is exactly right. He's making reference to a group of people who were called the Gnostics. The Gnostics were a group of people who believed that knowledge or information was the thing that could make you have a right relationship with God. They thought that the human problem was ignorance and that if you had the right information, you could have a right relationship with God. John is going to tell us that the real problem that human beings face is sin. And in order to have a right relationship with God, you have to make sure that the sin problem has been taken care of. John will waste no time with such hypocrisy. He says we lie and don't practice the truth. John doesn't allow for duplicity. You can't claim to have fellowship with God if you're living a lie, practicing sin, committed to disobedience. If you say one thing and live another, you're a liar. I read a horrifying statistic. 
36% of all pastors will commit adultery. I hoped and prayed it wasn't true. But all the evidence seems to indicate that it probably is true. I read a book called The Hidden World of the Pastor by Kenneth Swetland. The author lays bare the hypocrisy and duplicity of some pastors in the ministry. He tells the story of a couple named Tom and Sally. Forgive me if your name is Tom or Sally. Tom met Sally while attending Bible college. Tom was engaged to someone else. He broke up with Sally, or he broke up with that girl and he began dating Sally. They married. 18 months into the marriage, Tom started having an affair secretly. Tom got a job as a youth pastor at a church in Wisconsin. After two years, six women reported to the board of elders that they were sexually involved with Tom. Tom denied everything. He accused the women of being hysterical. The board pressured him to resign. He was immediately hired by another congregational church. I'm quoting from the book, quote, church attendance and programs increased in, as in the first church. Tom was a gifted preacher and a good organizer and had an unusual ability to relate to people. People were drawn to him the metal, like metal to a magnet because of his charm and dynamic personality. But two years after arriving at, his, at the church, Tom suddenly resigned and left the church within a few days. Sally was stunned. She later learned why Tom had resigned so abruptly. A man threatened to kill Tom after he learned from his wife that Tom was having an affair with him, unquote. The author describes a third church. Sally discovers letters. A young college co-head had written to her husband slash pastor. Several more affairs surface. He goes to three more churches over a 10-year period. Finally, the lies and the darkness come to a head. And Tom asked Sally for a divorce. Tom said, quote, I love you with a godly love, but I'm not in love with you, and I haven't been for the 15 of the 17 years we've been married, unquote. Tom forced her and the boys out of the house. Tom's a sick man. He needs help, but not the kind of help you can give him was the advice of Sally's friends. But God can do anything, Sally said. Tom's the first and only man that I've ever loved. Besides, I believe in the permanence of marriage, and I can't even think about divorce. Tom and I are both Christians. Pause. Pause for time out now in the story. Is he really? Is he really? Can you live a life? I'm not talking about making a mistake. And I'm not even talking about being involved in something that's sinful or difficult. I'm talking about living a lie over and over and over again. Sally said, quote, we have to do the right thing. I said for better or for worse. It took a long time for me to fall in love. I can't just simply fall out of love. Sally began to cry. 
Not the heavy tears so frequent in the past, but sobs of despair. She asked the question, what's the right thing? What's the right thing for a Christian to do? You know, God can give us the power to live lives that are pleasing to him. And real Christians don't have to be afraid of God. And they don't have to be afraid of the Bible. And they don't have to be afraid that the gospel might be fake. For some people, they think, well, wait a minute. If I really believe that Jesus is the Lord and I really confess my sin and I really walk away and I repent and I start living a life, then why do I continue to struggle with sin? Well, guess what? The Bible doesn't condemn us for having a struggle with sin. The Bible actually says we're going to struggle with sin. The Bible says that the flesh wars against the spirit. So what in the world is John trying to tell us? John is trying to tell us that Jesus isn't a phony, that Jesus is real, that the real Jesus that really lived and died and rose from the dead that claims and proclaims the ability to change your life can in fact change your life. We can live a lie. We can pretend to be Christians. We can pretend to walk in the light. We can pretend to misrepresent the Lord or represent the Lord. But the fact that we pretend doesn't make the gospel any less real. Jesus wasn't a phony. I don't like phonies very much. I don't like people who pretend to be something that they're not. What I'm about to say might come as a shock to you. I like the refreshing alcoholic breath of a drunk who tells me he's a drunk. The prostitute, the drug addict, the killer who know who they are and what they are. The sinner who knows that he or she is a sinner. But for the liar the sinner who pretends to be a saint when in fact they're not? That's a huge problem. Let me tell you why. It isn't just simply the hypocrisy of their life. Living a lie misdirects the lost. I read a story. There was a lighthouse on a Florida, Florida coast. When one of the glasses of the lantern was broken, they replaced the glass with tin. In that part of the lighthouse, there was a dead spot. A ship came in one night in a storm seeking harbor. The captain looked for the lighthouse, saw nothing, and crashed on the shore because there was a dark spot. I wonder if there are lost people who are looking for the light, who are looking for direction, who are looking for Jesus. And then they see me or they might see you. And they see the dark spot. They see the dark spot. John desires to counter two major false teachings that was being taught in his day. The first denied the reality of sin. In verse 6, 8, and 10, there were a group of people living in John's time who basically said, sin isn't sin. It isn't really disobedience and rebellion against God. Just like today. 
There will be people who will tell you that lying and cheating and stealing and prostitution and, and illicit drug use and homosexual behavior, it's not a sin. And they couldn't be more wrong. John's response to those who continue in sin. John's response to those who, not who experience sin or have an occasion of sin, but who continue in sin. He says that they don't belong to God. And do you know what else he's saying? That they don't belong to us. And that we can't belong to each other. The second major false teaching came from those who denied that Jesus was the Messiah. So there's two major things that John is dealing with as he's writing this book. He's dealing with a group of people who said there's no such thing as sin. And he's dealing with a group of people who are making the claim that Jesus isn't really the Messiah. Or that he hasn't really come in the flesh. So that you don't have to trust him as Savior the savior of your sin. And by the way, this becomes the root of every wrong teaching in the world. When you have a false view of God, chances are you're going to have a false view of Jesus. And if you have a false view of God and Jesus, the chances are you're going to have a false view of sin. And if you have a false view of sin, you're going to have a false view of salvation. But look at the blessings of fellowship, he says in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Aren't you glad he put that in? Particularly when you're feeling pretty bad right about now. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from almost all of our sin. Oh, hallelujah. Someone saw the text and said, no, it's all of it. We've talked about the basis of our fellowship. Jesus, what breaks our fellowship? Sin. And now he's talking about the blessings of real fellowship. And by the way, nothing's more important. Nothing is more important than fellowship with God. Now remember what I said to you about fellowship. It's the exchange of information and affection. It's about proximity and intimacy You can have relationship with God without having fellowship. But it's fellowship that we long for. Remember, the Gnostics believed that God was about knowing things about God. They claimed fellowship with God. But they didn't really have fellowship with God. Have you ever met someone who said, I'm spiritual? You know, I'm a spiritual person. Well, tell me about that. I'm a very spiritual person. Well, tell me about that. I believe in God. I love God. I pray to God. Well, how does God feel about the lying, cheating, and stealing, and wickedness in your life? He's okay with it. See, now, now you laugh, but I, I, again, I want you to come to grips with what's being said. The God that they pretend to have fellowship with isn't the God of the Bible. It isn't the God of the New Testament. It's a a God that they've made up in their own mind. 
Remember John's version of Christianity. John's version of Christianity didn't sit well with them. If you can claim that you can walk in the light, and that was their claim, and continue to live in habitual sin, and that was their behavior, John's saying, there's something wrong with you. You can't claim to have fellowship with the saints and separation from the saints in the same breath. Later on, John is going to say, how can you say that you love God who you can't see but hate your brother who you can see? He's going to come to grips with the fact that these Gnostics that he's addressing that we are somewhat familiar with because we understand the context in which this was written, they were making the statement that we like people generally, the only people that we don't care so much about are Christians. Well, what kind of Christians are are the ones that you hate? The ones that believe in the Bible. The ones that believe that Jesus is God. The ones that believe that he died on the cross for your sin. The ones that believe he literally, bodily, in reality, rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. Those are the ones we don't like. John's statement. The fact that they separated from the real Christ and real Christians is proof that they're not a Christian. The false teachers were unwilling to accept that their refusal to love and value Christians was a sin. And so the false teachers excused their own behavior and the behavior of their followers. They found a reason to continue to dislike Christians. But the one who walks in the light will find the blood of Jesus available for continued cleansing. That's what he's saying. And when you look at that, you might see a contradiction. Wait a minute, if you're walking in the light, that means you're not sinning. So why in the world would you need cleansing? James Montgomery Boyce writes, quote, the contradiction is only superficial. John is simply saying the one who walks in the fellowship with God will find forgiveness for any sin that might enter his or her life. In fact, such forgiveness is already provided for in the sacrifice of Christ. This is not said to encourage sin as some might think. Let us do evil that good may result. He's quoting Romans 3.8. But to encourage holiness. In other words, John and Paul are saying the same thing The word cleanse or purify in verse 7 is in the present tense. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses. Present. Tense. Why does that mean anything? And why should it be important to you? Because it means that it keeps on purifying. It keeps on cleansing. And that would be an equally good translation. It keeps on purifying, keeps on cleansing, keeps on purifying, keeps on cleansing, keeps on purifying, keeps on cleansing. You mean not just in the past? No, in the past. In the present? Yes, in the present. In the future? Yes, in the future. Do you mean that the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, provides an everlasting fountain of cleansing? The answer is yes. Particularly for the person who feels like giving up. Have you ever thought to yourself, I can't do this. I can't do it. 
I'm a failure as a Christian. I'm a failure as a Christian. I keep blowing it. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. I'm a failure as a Christian. God must be sick of me. God must be sick of me by now. How often can I go to him and get cleansing? If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ continuously cleanses. Do you know what this means? If I were to sum it up in a single sentence, and I hope you never forget it, there is fresh forgiveness for old sins. Isn't that good? Fresh Forgiveness for old sins? The blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, Satan throws our sin in our face. Satan throws it in our face and he throws the shameful, the deep and shameful things. And he says, is there cleansing for those sins? And the answer is, yes. David Jackman writes, Sin does matter. We dare not redefine it or pretend that it doesn't exist. If it demanded the price of the blood of God's only son on the cross, then it was a paramount importance that we take it seriously, accepting God's definition of where and what we are by nature and receiving the abundant pardon that's available to us by grace. Unquote, I love that. Charles Finney was preaching a great revival in the city of Detroit. And after a series one night, a man said to him, I'd like you to come home with me, Mr. Finney. And some who knew the man said to Finney, don't go. But he went anyway. And when they got to the man's house, they walked in. The man locked the door and he pulled out a gun. And he said to Mr. Finney, don't worry. I'm not going to shoot you. But I heard you preach tonight about the Lord Jesus. He said, this revolver has killed four men. He said, is there any hope for a man like that? And Charles Finney said, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. He said, is there any hope for someone like me? You don't understand. Down below this apartment where you're sitting right now, there's a saloon, and I've sent men down the road to hell. I've helped men rob their own children of food and milk. Is there any hope for a man who would run a saloon? And the preacher said, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. The man persisted. Across the street, there's a wife I've abused. There's a little girl who's disfigured. One night, he said, I came home and I was in a drunken rage, and my daughter came and she put out her hands and I shoved her away from me and I shoved her into a heater and she became horribly disfigured. He says, is there any hope for a man like that? And Charles Finney read, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, 
cleanses us from all sin. Soon after that, Finney left. And the next morning, the man stumbled across the street. He had not slept at all. He had stayed up all night praying. And when he got into the house, he stumbled up to his room. And in a little while, his wife said to the little girl, go tell your daddy it's time for breakfast. And she went upstairs and she said, mama said, it's time for breakfast. And he said, Maggie, darling, I don't want breakfast this morning. She ran back downstairs and she said, Mommy, Mommy, Dad said he didn't want breakfast this morning and he called me darling. The mother said, you must have made a mistake. You must have heard him wrong. Go back up there and tell him it's time for breakfast. And in a moment, the man came down and he took his wife in his arms and his little girl on his knees and he said, Oh, wife, as he wept, I've sinned against you like few men have ever sinned against anyone. But last night I heard a preacher preach. I heard about Jesus. And I heard about the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus has cleansed me from all my sin. He said, you have a new husband. He said to his daughter, you have a new daddy. This is what the Bible's claiming to do. To take people and change them forever. We're made new in Christ. By the way, These first seven verses of this very small epistle gives us clues into whether or not we really do have a right relationship with God and Christ. The first clue, do you enjoy having fellowship with Christ and the people of God in verse 3? If you don't, then you have every reason to wonder about your spiritual condition. Would Would people say that you walk in the light or you walk in darkness? And if the reoccurring statement is darkness, then you have every reason to wonder whether or not there might be something wrong. So what's the basis of our fellowship? It's the character of God. He's spirit, light, love. What's the basis of our fellowship? The sacrifice of Jesus in grace. What breaks our fellowship? Sin. When we live a lifestyle of persistent rebellion, disobedience, unrighteousness. Remember, that's what walking means. It's a persistent behavior. It's a movement, but it's a movement in the wrong direction over a period of time. Christians don't simply have a right belief. Christians who really know and love the Lord will have a right behavior. People can claim to be as orthodox as they like, but the real proof is in a changed life. And the blessing of real fellowship is that we have fellowship with true believers, with each other, 
And like Finney, we can say to anyone who asks us, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we thank you for this time and our opportunity to worship. Lord, we thank you for the ability to just to open up our Bible because we know that it will bring light. And it makes perfect sense that the light would bring conviction (laughs) and darkness would be exposed and there would be no place for it to hide. Lord, we pray that we would allow the Spirit of God and the Word of God to reveal the true condition of our heart. And that, Lord, if we've been pretending to be something that we're not, that the pretense could end tonight and that we could walk away from darkness and that we would walk into the light and that our fellowship would be with you and that our fellowship could be with each other in Jesus name amen and all the saints said let's stand